Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for the questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Cyril O, Jake S, Gary H, Jim G, and Leonard D. On Smith Weekly Discussions today as a returning guest, Mr. Brandon Monroe is here with us. Brandon is CEO and Managing Director of Bannerman Resources, a Namibia-focused uranium development company advancing the Entango Uranium Project in Namibia, Southwest Africa. Bannerman is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol BMN and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol BNNLF. Brandon, welcome back and uh, what's new? Thanks, Andrew. It's really great to be back on the show. Yeah, well, there's quite a lot that's new since the last time we caught up. Obviously, the sector's enjoying a the, the very early stages, I think, of a sentiment re, reboot. And at Tango, our project in Namibia has really made some good progress lately. So yeah, I feel like there's there's a lot we're going to talk about that people might not have caught on our previous chats before. Yeah, we'll have to keep it a little bit shorter. Definitely can go along with some of these. And part of it, too, is we don't have time limits. And we don't like to oversaturate with guests, as you and I have uh, talked before in the past, not to have someone with their face out there every couple of weeks. And yeah, lots going on. The sentiment uh, is interesting as well. And doesn't hold here. I guess that's up for debate. We'll see what happens. Maybe let's kick stuff off here, Brandon, because Adaprom just had 2020 results and they provided some 2021 guidance as it stands now, of course, subject to change. But uh, what are your thoughts on the major's recent results? Might as well throw Cameco in there. Yeah, well, look, I think the what's most interesting is production for me. There's lots of better qualified analysts who can talk about profitability and so on. And they're able to do that more freely than I can as a CEO of a, of a competing company. But from a production point of view, we've seen Chemico uh, uh, reduce its production quite dramatically because Cigar Lake has been on enforced care and maintenance because of COVID. And they've had to yo-yo it once to borrow some of Tim Gitzel's terminology. And of course, because Adam Prom's production down 15% for the year. That's not unexpected in any way, given the events that we've had last year. I think what's most interesting though to the sector is how much of a hangover or a tail is this industry going to have into 2021 because of the COVID disruption? We're already seeing Cigar Lake back offline as at December. So Cameco's production as we're standing is zero out of Canada. And speculation, I think, is mounting that that's going to continue into the middle of the year. Uh, it's my personal belief when I look at all of the different factors that are driving Cameco's decision-making process that we will see Cigar Lake off until mid-year. Cameco have been very strong that production targets do not trump the health and safety of their workers and their families, nor do production targets trump the uh, importance of their relationship with the community. And when you look at the dynamics there in northern Saskatchewan, unfortunately, the pandemic is still having an effect. It's still 
having creating a lot of concern for the local communities and the local chiefs. And it will get to a point where a vaccine and all of the comfort and solutions that that brings, once it's been rolled out, becomes an irresistible milestone for them to reach. So they've emphasised that they don't want to yo-yo the mine for, for very good reasons. They don't want to be turning it on and off again. And as the pandemic becomes more manageable there, which will be helped by the weather, we'll probably see that a vaccine solution is so close that it's not worth taking the risk of turning the mine on until, until the pandemic is well under control with the benefit of that. So it's my belief that it's likely that we will see a very substantial reduction in production coming out of Canada and therefore Cameco as a result of that. And then if we turn to Kazadamprom, well, they've reinforced their and restated their 2021 guidance. And that is the 20% reduction in what their mines are permitted to produce under their subsoil use contracts. Now that's not unexpected because they would be very cautious revising that guidance this early in the year. Uh, the way that it works with the subsoil use contracts is if they fall below that 20%, unless it's done either with the consent and negotiation of the government bureaucracy, or if it's done for force majeure type reasons, as it was last year, in the absence of either of those conditions, they're in breach of their mining license, effectively, their subsoil use contract. And that's a place that obviously, because Adam Prom just doesn't want to be with any of its operations, including and in particular with its joint venture operations. So even if they were concerned about 2021 guidance, they'd be advised not to start flagging that until they can fully assess all of their options for making up uh, any first half production losses in the second half. And then if we get to the end of 2021 and they can't do it, well, then they've got a stronger ability to have a force majeure discussion with government. And you bring up a logical point that maybe some people have missed, and that's the, uh, the confirmation that COVID is behind before restarting an asset like Cigar Lake notwithstanding that uh, I don't think you or I really care when that comes back, but I guess for short-term sentiment reasons, I guess you could understand why it would we'd like it to be delayed to some degree, but then there's another half of me that says, why not go ahead and get it going again and take advantage of any stupidity that happens in the market. But the subsoil use agreements, does a violation matter? Does the government care? Does anybody care there when it comes to Kazataprom violating something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is an interesting one because many people would look at Kazadam Prom and say, oh, look, you know, they're still 75% owned by the government sovereign wealth fund. Surely, you know, the right hand is just asking the left hand for permission to fall below the 20% minimum production corridor that they've got under their subsoil use contracts. But it really doesn't work like that. For a start, there's a bureaucratic overlay where even if it was government asking government, one department to another, in my experience in Kazakhstan, is a difficult bureaucratic process with many, many different layers of, uh, let's call it risk. And they just don't wanna go there. Secondly, it is essentially a public company. So the Sovereign Wealth Fund does operate with some degree of independence from government. And then of course, there's the 25% that's on the public capital markets that can't be exposed to that type of risk. 
Uh, so I'm convinced that they do take it very seriously. Their actions to date have shown that. And even a potential theoretical breach of their license to operate, their legal license to operate in the form of a subsoil use contract would just be unacceptable to both their joint venture partners, but also Kazatomprom itself. I want to move on here just for the sake of time. First, let's start with the Kazatomprom, Cameco, smashing the market. You know, they come back to nameplate all their projects, notwithstanding all the CapEx to get to that point, by the way. But let's say all that happens. Is it meaningful in this deficit market to the point where it's a incumbent recovery? Yeah, it's interesting. In an immediate sense, it is meaningful in that because there will be uh, some normality returning to the market. But I would argue that in fact, once those assets come back, it'll be even more meaningful because the buyers and the consumers in this market will have the realization that with all of those uh, idled and scaled back production back in the market, there's still a very substantial deficit. It's easy to, uh, it's tempting, let's say, if you're a fuel buyer at the moment, to really ignore or downplay the extent of the deficits that we're going to have, particularly from 2025, because you can point to all of the idled mines and say, well, look at those, you know, as soon as they come back, uh, we'll all be fine. And that kind of underlines the bear case for uranium right now. However, when you model out the contribution that those idled mines can make, and apply some meaningful timeframes as to when they would come back on and the price signals that would be required to bring those that production back on, you very quickly realise that this world is going to need new production, not just the return of viable idled production. And that's a moment that fuel buyers will have once that production comes back on if they haven't had it already. So I do think it's meaningful in a couple of different ways, but not only in the ways that you might expect. Let's take it a step further. And I just want to add to this that the question of those particular ones that we discussed come back online. At what price does that happen? And of course, the lead time that that happens. Things have already gone pretty well in the direction that we wanted for those things to happen first of all. So that means, you know, 45, 50 uranium long-term contracts. That's a good stepping stone. But the other point I wanted to bring up in addition to this, let's take it a step further and let's bring in all the rest of the production, Brandon, which as you know, requires typically higher prices than what I just said. Let's talk about some of the African assets. Let's talk about, you know, Paladin coming back on. Let's talk about all the US ISR and, and conventional coming back on. By the way, I would just add a price point even higher. At that point, what is your thought on market balance? Well, the first thing to understand, particularly for folks who might not have had a deep dive into the uranium sector, is of all of the potential projects that could come on, there's a number that will be perennially delayed. That is just the nature of our industry. And that's where uranium really differs from copper or gold, for example there is a political overlay that will see some assets stranded in jurisdictions that don't permit uranium mining or make it very difficult. There's a social and environmental overlay that will see interest groups get involved and in various ways delay projects. And any project that's exposed to obtaining an environmental approval uh, has a number of different risks relating in particular to the approach that the host country takes to weighing up 
the benefits of uranium mining versus any perceived or actual environmental and social costs. So that's the first thing to note. You can't just look at aggregated potential production and say, well, if you tip all of that in, it's going to satisfy demand over a period of time. The next thing to note is that it's the nature of junior companies that they will present to their audience, which in the junior phase is predominantly an investor audience, with the most attractive possible pricing scenario. The reality is to get mines financed, they need a healthy IRR. There's often uh, some risk that needs to be placed onto the numbers that a company's producing as it moves through the feasibility phase. And so what I'm saying is that the the trigger prices or the incentive prices that you might assume just looking at public announcements and the messaging from various junior mining companies in this space should be elevated, uh, should be elevated in some cases quite significantly. Um, so it's going to need both the financing trigger, which is price, but also something that's far less predictable and controllable, which is environmental permitting before we can even start to see this market rebalance. Now, there's another demand overlay that I'd like to throw in here, Andrew, and that is the China factor, because I don't think it's been correctly priced into this market at the moment. And the reason why it's so important for this market is you can graph supply and demand as I do, and as I do with the World Nuclear Association in my capacity there. And you can look at what demand is going to be in say 2028, and then you can make some assumptions about what supply is likely to be after bringing on all of the idled mines and making uh, some uh, estimates as to when environmental approval is going to take place and making the assumption that the price will rise to the necessary inflection point to enable incentivization of new production. Now, what we find is after doing all of that, there's still a, a significant deficit in production at 2028. But where it all changes and where it all becomes a critical deficit is the way that a new market like China would work. And you could say the same about India and Russia, but the way that a new market like China works is we don't only take into account what they're consuming in nuclear reactors in 2028 or what their fuel cycle needs to be in 2028 for reactor consumption in 2029 and 2030. You need to think about what their strategic requirements will be, which is not governed by what they're producing by 2030. It's governed by what they expect to be producing by 2040. And when in every single possible way that I cut the analysis for China, for them to achieve their objective of being carbon neutral by 2060, there needs to be an enormous increase in nuclear energy. And that's now being borne out by various different analyses uh, that we're seeing around and, and many of which you've seen yourself. So that is the behemoth that could drastically alter the supply demand equation from a very significant deficit as it already is to something that uh, speaks to a supply crisis in this sector, which even if we see uh, a very positive scenario with environmental permitting coming out of Canada and other jurisdictions, we're still going to have a huge degree of demand for uranium as we progress through the 2030s. So that's one of the reasons why I'm just so optimistic about where I think we're going to get to with this sector and why I'm particularly pleased to be in a jurisdiction that um, is favourable for selling uranium to China.
the hidden asset there is really, and you hit on it, this lead time, what's expected versus what it can actually be. And that comes in with the governance part of it and the social side of it and the, the social license and also the, just the permitting part of it. And then the last piece is the CapEx. So all of that stuff is just killer positive for the price when you really drill it all down. Back to your comment about some of the companies about optimistic view, I think, and I'll have another question on this in a moment, but I do think there is a handful of companies out there that are being conservatively honest on total costs and that will benefit really them at the time of production, in my opinion. So I think there are a few honest ones out there. A lot of it is smoke, but uh, there are a few, I think. They're under promise style will, I think, benefit them later on in the cycle. I want to just talk one other point here. The secondary supply at this point, what's your view on secondary supply and the level of secondary supply coming into this market at this point? Because there is a substantial variance in two price reporters analysis here, and I'd like to get your view on that. So again, much with my comments on China, there's a macro analysis, a quantitative analysis answer to that question. And from the modeling that I've done and what we've done at World Nuclear Association, if you take the demand scenario um, that assumes no significant improvement in the conditions for nuclear, particularly social conditions, and that's a reference case, then you see a tapering of secondary uh, supply in particular underfeeding, which uh, tapers down to effectively zero by about 2035. Um, there'll always be some secondary supply because there is an incentive, of course, to uh, recycle, use nuclear fuel. Um, there's an incentive to reprocess tails and so on. But uh, the secondary supply that I think has been had the biggest price effect in particular underfeeding will have uh, just been absorbed by the uh, 1.8 compound average growth rate of demand out to that period. Now, if you then apply the upper scenario, which assumes what I would say is a continuation of exactly what we're seeing today with the eve of the new nuclear renaissance and the very important part that nuclear has to play in the decarbonisation thematic, then that secondary supply truncates a lot sooner and we effectively see no contribution from underfeeding by the end of this decade. What I would then add to that is an overlay, which is the effect that SMRs are going to have. And that's because, uh, so small modular reactors, we aren't going to see significant demand increases for uranium this decade, because in general, they're, they're only going to be sold from about the, the last few years of the 2020s. However, what we will see is the fuel cycle gearing up towards them. And in particular, they generally, there's many different designs, but they generally run on HALU, high assay, low enriched uranium. And rather than conventional reactors that might run on three and a half to 4.95% enriched uranium, um, HALU is up to 19.9%. Now what's significant and, and relates to your question, Andrew, is that the the current indications as, how, as to how the enrichers are going to produce HALU is that they're going to start with 4.95% LEU and then enrich it up to 19.9. So that means towards the end of this decade, they will all be gearing up 
for the designs, the SMR designs that have been successful and are able to achieve some market penetration to create the fuel sources for those. In a way where most of these SMR designs, they leave the factory preloaded with fuel in one way or another, often for their 20 year um, operating life. That will suck the market dry of the LEU at that point. So I see that in either the reference case or certainly the uppercase scenario as having a very, a, a very determined and short effect on the available secondary supply in this market. And then the final comment that I'd make, depending on how you define secondary supply, if we are talking about inventory drawdown, well, that's what uh, what we're experiencing right now, accelerated inventory drawdown because of uh, the COVID disruption and the number of mines that are on uh, care and maintenance right now. Yeah, Brandon, and I want to touch on that. And the SMR part of it, you know, I really hope that they get there. And it should have been done decades ago. Hopefully they get there and will be much more comfortable when they do get there. And there is a need for teaming in this space. There needs to be consolidation. I mean, people talk about consolidation in the uranium sector. <laughs> they need a big time consolidation in the SMR sector. Bring that little bit of capital, pool it together, put aside the prides and get to work. Get on board for the better good of actually making a viable uh, entry to the market sooner rather than later. But just on the secondary supply point, do you have a rough number? I know that the WNA has that, but do you have a rough number for what secondary supply is going to be reported for 2020? Look, it depends how you define secondary supply, but I work on 25 million pounds plus inventory drawdown. And within that 25 million, you're talking about um, every form of non-mined uranium uh, other than just simple inventory drawdown. So uh, the drawdown of existing UF6 and existing U308 and existing EUP. So you can put uh, into that underfeeding, you can add uh, tails re-enrichment, you can add Russian treatment of slightly irradiated uranium, um, and you can add MOX and recycling, recycled uranium to that. That's great, and that's uh, very close to what uh, we have here as figures as well. And it reinforces that there's just one group out there that just doesn't know what they're doing. They're too lazy to change their numbers, I suppose, or, or actually do some work. But uh, let's leave that one. Um, okay, so China here. Back to them real quick. As you know, they're increasing their production share with Kazataprom. Ambitious efforts to uh, to continue to absorb where they can. As they do that, do you see later in the cycle that they could start to impact the future spot market and also just overall access to uranium supply. Absolutely, I think their impact will be profound. And it'll be profound not only because of what they need for their own requirements as we've already discussed, but the remaining uh, markets for nuclear power and therefore markets for uranium will find themselves getting squeezed out. So that realization will happen hopefully ahead of time and you'll see a crunch in this sector as they try and compete to secure their own supply, just finally understanding how voracious the Chinese appetite will be. What's your position here on years of Western utility inventory to be left at this point on the shelf? Do you have a just drop dead, something has to happen date Lastly, do you really see that with these Western utility inventories that they're really just immobile at this point in time? 
Yeah, I do believe that they're immobile right now. We've got the stats in terms of the EIA data out of the US, which uh, once I've uh, done some adjustment to the figures to try and smooth reactor reloads and a few other things, um, I calculate that it's 2.2 years of inventory cover. Um, now that's not the number you'll see out there the whole time because I have adjusted those numbers, but that's the way I think about it. So as at the last end of um, 2019, that's how much they had and clearly there's been a lot of inventory draw over the last year as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the end of 2020 will be and my suspicion is they will drop below two years of inventory cover. Um, and again, Euratom numbers uh, for the end of 2019, we saw that uh, there was a bit more cover for the European utilities. They try and maintain a level of cover, but we will have seen that drop as well because of COVID disruption last year and all of the challenges that utilities have faced and the various reasons why they haven't been active in the fuel buyer market. Now, there's a few things to understand about the psychology of maintaining inventories in order to answer that question. And Andrew, I think we've talked about before, there's, there's a number of virtuous cycles that happen as a market, particularly uranium, starts to pick up. The first virtuous cycle is that when a price starts to rise, uh, utilities and other market players hold tighter onto the inventory that they've got. When a market flat for some period of time, as we've seen with uranium, you see, for example, the finance department say to the fuel buyer, you know, you've maintained two and a half years of inventory for the last five years, that's just sitting on the balance sheet doing nothing. We could have sold two years of that or one year of that a few years ago, used that money, and you could have bought it back cheaper because the price has been going down. You know, how do we justify carrying this much capital in the form of inventory? And that's been a very real discussion that's been taking place amongst several, at least, utilities. And that's led to that degree of mobility that we've seen. If you think that the price isn't going anywhere in the next two years, A, you might be under pressure to use your balance sheet more, and B, you're not scared about being low on inventory because there's an assumption that you can just simply buy it back. Now what we're seeing is increasing prices and an increased understanding that prices need to rise further. So not only will they hold on to the inventory and resist any uh, attempts to optimise balance sheets, but the view will become, well, we'd better top up and make sure that as this cycle kicks off, we are perhaps on the higher side of historical inventory rather than being on the lower side. So that's in itself a virtuous cycle. And there's other virtuous cycles that affect mobility as well. And the, probably the key one is in Japan where Japanese inventory sitting at current prices well below what it's carried on on balance sheet. And so there's a natural inertia in that equation because the large Japanese utilities don't want to sell that inventory into a market and then realise significant losses. And so there's an assumption that um, one particular price reporter works on that as soon as prices go up, that uh, a lot of that inventory will simply materialise from Japan. Now, unless we see a total stalling of Japanese progress on restarting reactors and long-term planning on introducing nuclear back into the system, I don't buy that argument at all. And by the way, we're not seeing that stalling. There's been 
as we can talk about perhaps there's been a huge amount of positive progress occurring in Japan, both in the immediate and longer term um, for nuclear power. Now what will happen in reality is as the price starts to get close to the holding cost of that inventory on these balance sheets, will the Japanese uh, owners of that inventory will experience the same thing that everyone else will in this market, which is some very deep concern about where the supply is going to come from. And so therefore they will hold on. And to the extent that they don't hold on, if there are utility that doesn't have uh, remaining operating reactors, they'll be under enormous pressure to maintain that within the closed circuit of Japanese energy security. So there might be a little bit of trading between Japanese utilities, but I do not buy the argument that we're going to see um, any substantial amounts of that Japanese inventory come back into the market just simply because the price has gone up somewhere near their holding cost. Would you say the cutoff point is 2023? We could see things change earlier than that, but I think if you were to work on 2023, you're going to be quite safe. So there's a couple of reasons. First of all, we know that the deficit in uranium will really start to bite from 2025. And even if we have a situation where fuel buyers are slow to realise that or slow to accept that scenario um, as the likely scenario, by 2023, it's really going to be in their faces. And the natural progression through the fuel cycle takes two years. So if they're going to need that uranium and if they're going to be thinking competitively about obtaining that uranium to put in their nuclear power plants by 2025, then the latest they can leave it for obtaining and acquiring that uranium is 2023. The contracting cycle will need to start earlier than that because you need to allow time for not only negotiation but also delivery and in the case of new production, they're actually constructing plants and mines. Um, so the assumption that inventory can be obtained at a much later point in the fuel cycle and therefore closer to when it's needed in the power plant will be tested by 2023 for sure. And I just don't think there'll be that availability of mobile inventory at that point. You know, I just say that the fridge is really less than half full at this point. And I would expect probably like you that we start looking forward, the market does. And of course, all the participants start looking forward as we start to move here, there's gotta be some anticipation. And I think we're starting to see that. And last, I can certainly see why a utility would make their books look fat or self-serving for purposes of making it look like there is plenty. Well, let's move on. Let's get into Bannerman here. How's that? Let's see. Capital raise. Who's continuing to support the company? Uh, what's the plan with the capital, Brandon? And if market conditions stay the same with generally no action here, how far does this capital get you? Yeah, so thanks, Andrew. We've just raised 12 million Australian dollars um, and we're very pleased to be able to raise that at a share price of 10 and a half cents. So maybe if I can just put that in context for a moment. Uh, the last time we raised was in June 2018 and we raised at 4.6 cents and the last time we raised before that was uh, 2016 when we raised at 3 cents. Uh, so they're the three raisings that I've done in the five years that I've been CEO of Bannerman. And you know, I've got to tell you, I'm pretty proud with that progression, given that it's been a pretty deep and ugly bear market that we've endured during that time. 
so the other the other thing that you could look at is that our 12 month VWAP um, volume weighted average price, including the huge volume that we've done at uh, very good prices since the beginning of December, our 12 month VWAP was under six cents. So we feel that it's uh, it's been a good result for shareholders. We think it's rewarded a bit of the patience and certainly the financial discipline that we've shown. And there's only a few companies out there that that have been in a position to really see out last year and all of the difficulties in equity markets last year and um, hold off on raising until that they saw more favourable conditions as we've seen. Um, now, what it enables us to do is, first of all, some uh, some of your audience would know that we've progressed our Atango Uranium project in Namibia to a dual track development. The first track is the original Atango project where a DFS was first completed in 2012, and that's for a very large project, an annual production of 7.2 million pounds, which is enough uranium to service 17 conventional reactors, just to put that scale in perspective, or about $100 billion worth of capital cost in terms of building nuclear plants. But we came to understand that uh, we'd be best off having a smaller development alternative as well, particularly if it enabled us to get into production sooner with lower development hurdles. And so in August last year, we announced a scoping study for the Itango 8 project. And uh, in case you're wondering, the 8 refers to 8 million tonnes per annum throughput. So that's the amount of uh, ore that's being um, processed each year. That results in three and a half million pounds average annual production of U308. So we, we've done a couple of really significant things with a Tango 8. Apart from just making it smaller, we've really proportionately decreased the CapEx requirement. Under the very large version of a Tango, we had a capital requirement of 793 million US. And whilst that's fair enough for a project that big, and that's pretty typical in the sector, uh, for a small junior company who's properly beaten up by a long bear market, that was obviously a sticking point and a friction point for many investors looking at Bannerman and Detango. So now what we've done is we've reduced that down to 254 million. And that compares to our current market capitalization of uh, a bit over 100 million US. So we've still got a, um, some some time to go in terms of growing into our boots with that, but it's a number that should no longer be a sticking point for investors in the uranium sector at least. Uh, we've also increased and, and improved the uh, IRR and the NPV. So to put that in a bit of perspective, using a $65 price, our NPV now sits at 212 million US dollars and we uh, do an IRR post-tax of uh, slightly over 21%. So it's a solid project at $65. Uh, it could be quite happily built at 60. Um, and we've reduced our operating costs as well. So it hasn't just been a, a transfer of capital cost over to operating cost. Now, what all of that means for us is that we can get into production sooner with lower development hurdles. But then once we're in production, we're only consuming roughly 50 million pounds out of a 270 million pound ore body. So the potential to then expand production 
if need be, all the way back up to the original design of a Tango, is very much there. So the plan, if we develop a Tango 8 first, would be to get into production, get profitable, pay the bank back, and then uh, into these deficits that I'm expecting in this sector to then increase our production and um, create the originally anticipated very large mine in a much better uh, risk managed way. Um, so that's the, the preface on which the capital was raised. And what $12 million does for us is it enables us to complete the PFS by mid-year, complete the DFS that we would uh, expect to commence immediately on this project, be well funded for all of the financing and marketing requirements that we would then have to get a Tango into production, have sufficient working capital runway to deal with the scenario that you talked about, which is things take a little bit longer than we would hope and expect, and still be able to defer our next capital raising until we're ready to actually finance the construction of this mine. And that's assuming that we go down a conventional financing route and we don't obtain uh, slightly more favourable offtake financing or something like that that doesn't require a large lick of equity. So that's what it's done for us, Andrew. It's, it's really fundamentally de-risked the financing piece for us and a tango. And it's, uh, it's sent a message that there's really a, only one way now into this stock until we're ready to build the project, and that is to come on market. And I think the other part of your question was, you know, who's supporting, uh, well, Tribeca Investment Partners, which is a specialist uranium fund, have just uh, lodged their substantial shareholder notes this morning on ASX. So they were an existing shareholder, but they cornerstoned the raising. And so now they're a substantial shareholder and uh, been a long-term supporter of Bannerman. And we also saw participation from uh, our existing institutional register and about a dozen new institutional names. And these names were selected because of their capacity to really upscale their involvement in the sector and in our company. And we were quite actually quite pleased with, uh, there were some, uh, some institutional investors who came into our register who I didn't think invested in $150 million um, Australian dollar market cap companies, but they're obviously taking a view on the sector and a view on us, and they're quite happy for us to grow into our boots in that respect. Brandon, that's great, good overview. I like the, I guess it can be done both ways if you're careful, but the, the 2016, the 2018, you know, these occasional raises really think that that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's harder to raise frequently and do it right for perception purposes. It can be done, but it's, it's very complex. Whereas you've picked some pretty good times to raise money. You know, I don't fault the companies for going out and starting to raise money at these levels. I think it makes some sense just in case the uh, worst scenario does play out, which is entirely possible, unlikely, but certainly possible. You know, I think that makes sense as well. And so appreciate the overview there. And if you guys can get all the way to 2023, if that's what happens um, without having to raise another dime, I think also that's just a, a fantastic strategy that's played out time and time again for you over the last five years. There's probably one thing that um, your comments bear a response to, and that is, you know, with the raising, you, you obviously, you always disappoint some people when you raise, no matter what. But our assessment of where we're at at the market at the moment is a decision to raise was a good decision 
in either scenario. So the one negative scenario, which we don't think is the probable one, but as a board, we need to look at that. The negative scenario that equities retraced from here, well, clearly it's a good decision to raise because we've locked in our cost of capital and uh, we're well, uh, well financed to do what we need to do. But even in the scenario which we think is more probable that uh, we really see equities continue to surge from here after a bit of a breather, that's in our mind also a good decision because otherwise, as we got closer to the middle of the year, we would have been perceived as being come raise. And I just know that it's very hard to build momentum when everyone's looking at a company thinking, well, that looks good but I'm not gonna buy on market. I'd rather just wait until they raise and cuddle up to the right broker or if you're an institutional investor, um, just expect that you'll get a good lick of that raising. So what I think we've done is we've totally decoupled any perception that we're come raise, which enables us to participate a lot more fully in the expected momentum that we'll have as the sector starts to pick up from here. And if things don't go right, well, we really fundamentally de-risk that aspect and we can look forward to, uh, you know, 2022, 2023 and onwards. Yeah, that's correct. And you have just in your past history of raising that uh, maybe people have to wait. So it's it's either come into the market here, wait for maybe some declines. Maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't buy in the market because it's possible that there is no capital raise for a time. Now, obviously, if the market continues going up from here and we start seeing prices where it makes sense to start front running, I can see why you know capital could be raised in a shorter time frame. It's just hard to predict exactly how that's going to work out. But I think we have a pretty good view of what needs to happen, and we're happy both ways. You know, we'd still like to continue to allocate to the sector, and so there's part of me that, as an investor, that says, you know, maybe we can get some lower prices. But if we don't, that's okay too, because we've we definitely have a, a really firm grip on things at this point, and. Maybe just talk about what's going to be the timing of the DFS, what you guys are going to do really for the rest of this year, and when can folks really expect that DFS, or will it be somewhat market-dependent as far as price and events? So we're in the PFS process at the moment. Uh, that's targeted for a mid-year delivery, so mid-2021. What we think from there is that we think the DFS will take between nine and 12 months. And we've got a degree of confidence about that that you wouldn't normally see particularly with a large project even though we've made it significantly smaller a tango is still actually a very big project with the capacity to produce three and a half million pounds there's very few uranium projects out there i should have said that before so the reason why we've got that extra confidence is normally what you would what a company would experience going from a scoping study as they're known on asx or a pea as they're known in north america You'd go from a scoping study to a PFS, and there's three uh, high-risk activities, three activities that have a risk to both the budget of the PFS, uh, a risk to timing, and also a risk to outcome. In other words, how well the PFS uh, performs versus the scoping study. So the first one of those is environmental. Normally, and what we did back in uh, 2008 when we completed our original scoping study was we normally you'd start environmental baselines you'd start the permitting process etc cetera, etc cetera. and that is a process that uh, as we've talked about can take an awful long time we don't have to deal with that 
So we still have we we've had an environmental baseline since 2008. Uh, the project is permitted. This version of the project remains permitted, and so that's just not a feature of our PFS or our DFS for that matter. The next one's resource drilling. Normally, you'd go from scoping study to PFS. You'd do a bunch of resource drilling, and then you'd do a bunch more resource drilling to get from PFS to DFS. So we've drilled 360 kilometres into this project, and as I said before, we've got a resource of 270 million pounds at a Tango. So we don't need to do any more resource drilling. And the nature of a Tango 8 is it's just simply operating as a subset of the larger Tango pit design. And then the third aspect that you would normally need to tackle is metallurgical work. And that can, that can be a, a showstopper in many instances, moving from scoping study to PFS. And again, we've done all of that. Uh, something that I didn't mention before is we operated a heap leach demonstration plant, effectively a pilot plant for three years. And that metallurgy hasn't changed one little bit. We will do some work on that to further optimise our reagent costs, but there's no need to do any processing or metallurgical work to progress from scoping study to PFS or from PFS to DFS. So we're very blessed for those reasons. And that's why we can get a DFS done, we think very quickly for such a large project and also very inexpensively. Whether it ends up being nine months or 12 months, well, we, we're gonna need a bit more clarity to, to understand the exact timing, but that's what we think at this stage is, is our best estimate. Um, now your question about go or no go. It, so one, it's a it's a great question because what this capital raising has done is it's locked in the cost of capital for us to progress to a DFS. So we don't need to do a market assessment at the time in order to roll from a PFS to a DFS. The only two decisions that we need to make is, has anything dramatic changed in the uranium sector that changes our view on uranium? and uh, it's hard to see where that could possibly come from, but obviously any responsible board would need to address that question when we get there. And then the only other question is, are we comfortable with how the PFS has performed versus our expectations of it? Uh, what we don't need to do is say, gee, is now the right time because we're going to have to raise some money for this DFS and, oh, gee, we don't like our cost of capital and it, should we be stalling, should we be going slower, et cetera, et cetera. We now have that locked away and we're very comfortable with that cost of capital and deploying that towards a DFS, given the amount of value we think it's going to add to the project and the company. That's correct. And just my point on that was the bit about Bannerman's 30 cents in six months what happens at that point, et cetera. I mean, obviously there's gonna be some changes in some of the game plan for future beyond DFS strategic purposes of development stage stuff that you wanna you know, pad the bank accounting for, but fully agree with what you've said here. And I think this is a, this is a fantastic place to uh, do that. Okay, I wanna talk cost here, Brandon, for a moment. We've seen a lot of promises and information regarding costs coming out of Bannerman in the past and more recently from Goviex, uh, from Deep Yellow, and also from uh, Global Atomic. First, I'd like your view on truth and advertising. And secondly, I'd like the Bannerman view in regards to how you approach the two schools of thought, one being over-promise, under-deliver, and the second, under-promise and over-deliver when it counts. What's your thoughts on that? Well, look, thanks. I was really pleased that you raised that 
before about honest prices and I'm glad you've come back to it. We certainly subscribe to the honest prices approach. And uh, look, that, that goes well back to before my time in the company. So I haven't needed to change any aspect of that. Um, but what I would advocate other companies to think about is you're ultimately gonna get found out when it comes to long-term contracting. Because if you put out either uh, unduly optimistic prices or, you know, to use your words, dishonest prices, you're going to be found out when the utilities say, well, okay, we're prepared to offer you X. And your board says, oh, gee, we can't accept X because we don't really make money or we don't make enough money at that. So it's only a short-term strategy, which really only leads to one place, which is being taken over. And any company that's worth its salt in an acquisition sense is going to do its own due diligence and they're going to put people onto that due diligence who are trained professionals at picking the holes and the weaknesses in both your technical work and your assumptions and everything else and you're just going to get beaten up during the process and uh, some of your audience would know that I worked for Bannerman um, back from uh, 2009 so I was uh, I lived in Namibia for several years and I was responsible for obtaining the environmental approvals for the Atango project back then. And one thing I can remember from that experience is uh, our project director, John Turney, who's a tremendous guy. And uh, he was my colleague at that time and he continues to be a, a close friend and mentor really. Um, he came from a, a background of being that exact person. He, was, uh, he worked inside the Homestake and then Barrack Homestake group and he's, he's an incredible mind, let's just leave it there. But his job was to go in, conduct the due diligence and brief his corporate guys on how do they, how do they beat the hell out of their counterparties and knock out all of their confidence so that when it comes to agreeing the final price deal, the, the management of the company that's being acquired are utterly demoralized. And that was the, that was the culture. We do not ever, ever, ever want to be in that situation. So all of the technical work was done incredibly well. And we did have various groups do due diligence. Utilities did due diligence um, back in 2010 when it looked like we were rolling into production before Fukushima. Um, we've had other majors do due diligence as well. And not once did that ever come back at us in terms of, gee, well, we're not too sure. You've, you've seemed to have used a lot of... Uh, well, I won't highlight what all of the um, weaknesses that can be found in uranium projects, except to say we know what they are and we know that they, they cannot be thrown at us. So that's been the culture with our, with our project. And sometimes it's a little bit tough because you've got either analysts that, uh, who favour other companies or sometimes competitive CEOs who want to just throw rocks at our cost. And what I keep saying is, well, you know what? We don't market Bannerman as being lowest quartile cost producer. That's not what we are. However, Bannerman should be in everyone's portfolio because we have some very important other attributes and they relate to the confidence that we've had that we can be in production by 2025, either Itango 8 or the original Itango at that scale. It's a confidence that we've got because we've already got an environmental permit. It's a confidence that we've got that we're in Namibia. It's a confidence that we've got that we've done all that technical work so well and it's a very simple open pit heap leach mining operation. 
Now, the reason why I was so pleased that you mentioned it is having said all of that, it doesn't mean I don't get really frustrated sometimes when I see other CEOs putting numbers out that don't do themselves any favours, in my opinion, but serve to really muddy the waters and distort the perspective of both investors and utilities about what is realistic. And ultimately, one way or another, as I said, they'll be found out, but I just, I just wish it was a bit more consistent. Yeah, interesting for the point that you could take it a step further theoretically if you have a little bit of a creativeness in your head here. And you could say they execute an underpriced contract for the sake of a contract with a hope of waving that paper around to the market with a further hope deep down at places you don't talk about at parties about let's make it up later via spot selling or leave room for higher floor price contracts. Do you see this level of perversion coming into the market? Well, I think we just need to clarify how a contracting portfolio works because to a degree what you're describing would be done without being perverse at all. Uh, a company who's, particularly if they're looking to contract at the moment, um, which we aren't, we think that uh, the, we'd rather wait for the contracting cycle to develop a lot more heat before we enter. Um, but there are a couple of companies out there who are actively trying to acquire contracts at the moment. And they will do that. They, they obviously won't contract below their cost of production because that wouldn't be intelligent, but they might be willing to take at least some contracts uh, somewhat close to their break even just to demonstrate that uh, utilities are prepared to contract with them and they have passed the due diligence requirements and um, perhaps they will waive those pieces of paper a little bit to um, get some extra confidence. Uh, from shareholders and so on. But you know, every underpriced contract is going to need a corresponding overpriced contract to generate uh, a contract portfolio that makes sense. So if I was in their shoes, I would be patient because I know that time will be our friend because of the way that this market's going to develop. And if you've got an underpriced contract that needs to be balanced out by an overpriced contract, well, you can only push the button on the financing by the time you've got that overpriced contract anyway. So you're not necessarily gaining anything in terms of timing. You perhaps are um, buying a little bit of patience with investors and others by saying, look, we do have a contract finally. So I just wanted to clarify for you how those work. Now, will it be perverted? Well, to a degree, we've seen that, that perversion in the market already. Um, we've had options deals dressed up as contracts. Um, that have been waved around. And uh, I think you probably know who those projects are and you know where they're at at the moment, which is nowhere. So hopefully what uh, the, the other, uh, my colleagues in the industry have realised is that that's not a very effective way of going about demonstrating confidence in the investor community. Um, you're better off just doing what you do well and over time maintaining that credibility and confidence in other ways. Yeah, I agree. There's always some bad apples and I was coming at it from the angle of a bad apple, not a strategic, intelligent player here that can actually execute on some very, very complex, exotic, you know, setups, but just the ones that, uh, that really are, are going to drive it into the ground, that type of setup. That's the point there. But maybe let's just transition this into another piece. And I would just add before I do, you know, the scale component of Bannerman is important. And if this market goes anywhere close to where we think it goes, plus probably much higher, is that if things are done properly, 
there can be some, some nice long-term scale to what Bannerman does that actually you know, provides a lot of optionality besides the speed factor being in a fantastic place like Namibia. I just want to point that out as well, but come back for a moment and shed some light on long-term contracting strategy for Bannerman as far as clients diversification. So what's your plan for various jurisdictional clients for obvious reasons, the type of contract that you would look to try to do, and maybe you can answer this for us. Would you off-take 35% of your production at 55 a pound uranium? <laughs> well, I won't answer that because uh, I'm not answering it for you. I'm answering it for the world at large, including the parties who'd be very interested in that. Um, but what, what I can say is we've got an advantage. We, we've got two advantages, I think. The first one is being in Namibia. And from Namibia, you can sell to anywhere. Uh, Namibia has delivered for a long time into Europe, into the US, into China, into other parts of Asia. And so that means by definition, we can and will aim for a very broad contract portfolio. And that helps us from a diversification. But remember, it also helps the utilities because I foresee that geopolitical tensions only will get more intense. Uh, they've certainly grown over the last few years and they're higher than since perestroika when the wall came down and we saw the collapse of Soviet Union. That was the last time we saw geopolitical tension, anything like these levels that we've got right now. And so you'll see most uranium production start to bifurcate into a couple of blocks. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a total bifurcation. It could well fall short of that, but it will mean that uh, utilities will be very uncomfortable with certain uh, origin uranium and therefore will want to limit their exposure to that uranium. And that's where Namibia can really hit its straps because Namibia will form a balancing part of that equation. So if you're a US utility, you don't want to be uh, totally dependent on Canadian and Australian production. Uh, you're probably going to be a bit reluctant in this scenario to put too many eggs in the Kazakh and Uzbek basket. And that's where Namibia plays that balancing role. It gives those utilities some commercial diversification versus the Canada and the Australian production and uh, some genuine geopolitical diversification versus Kazakh and Uzbek production. Now, that's from a US perspective. The same can be said from a EU perspective. But remember what, where we started this conversation with China, um, China will be distinctly uncomfortable with Canadian and Australian production or being too reliant on it anyway. And, uh, and there's just a limit on how much production China can suck out of Kazakhstan because of the Kazakh relationship with Russia, who we haven't talked about Russia, but um, their domestic and export demand for uranium will be also growing quite dramatically over this period of time. So Namibia will service China, Russia, South Korea, the Middle East, and the US and EU markets all at once, offering that very important balancing point um, that will make that production attractive. So that's the first thing. Look, the second thing is um, because of the technical simplicity that we've got with our project, that will also be attractive. When utilities are thinking about how do they encourage new diversified supply to come into the sector. The thing that makes them nervous is uh, technical complexity 
And the same can certainly be said for the state-owned enterprises coming out of China, Middle East um, in particular. Um, the same with new entrants such as Poland. They're worried about technical complexity. They're worried about uh, not knowing enough about mining. And we've seen both CNNC out of China and CGN out of China having their noses bloodied, CNNC in Niger and CGN at Husab where they didn't uh, understand mining as well as they would have hoped. So technical uh, simplicity really counts for a lot uh, for us and for the you know small handful of other projects that don't have any um, particular complexity to them. That will enable us to not only achieve the diversification within our contract book that I've talked about, but we think that we'll be able to achieve contracts at an attractive price perhaps a bit earlier than our peers because of that. And that's a good point about the simplicity. That's so sometimes misunderstood or just not realized or underappreciated by the market. And that actually counts for a lot here. As we've seen, HUSAB, for example, is definitely not performing like everybody thought it would, which is good. And maybe one day it will, but certainly that's a, a fine example. Back to this surprise factor, my 55 comment was really just going back to my comment about under-promise, over-deliver. Not going to ask you for your comments on that. We'll see what you do when the market gets to that point. But from there, talk about what you would like to see for a contract type coming out of Bannerman. How would you approach that? You know, obviously with uh, outside interested parties listening, maybe just give them a flavor. Sure. And this is where I, I am happy to talk about the role of off-take agreements. Um, so there's something very attractive about an off-take financing in our sector. Um, that, you know, for people joining this conversation who are used to gold or copper or base metals, the thing that's very, that's got a lot of potential attraction is the expectation that we will be off-take financing. And we're not in any discussions. It's way too early in the cycle to create any expectations with off-take finances and state-owned enterprises. But let me put it this way. The... At Tango 8, its initial production, so its initial average production of three and a half million pounds, that's enough to service seven or eight conventional nuclear reactors. So in other words, a let's call it a utility or a state-owned enterprise uh, could do an off-take deal where they secure enough uranium for two conventional reactors. And if they've got a decent-sized fleet, that's a very substantial uh, element of supply certainty that they're adding to their portfolio. Now, the cost of those two reactors, um, you know, if it's in the Western world, it's uh, $10 billion or more. If it's in China, it's more like 6 to $7 billion. What they can then do, the relativity works heavily in their favour in the sense that to secure that degree of offtake financing, I think it's quite reasonable that we could then expect to negotiate some soft debt conditions to finance our whole project. And so there is the, we'd hope and expect that when we get there, there is an option that's on the table, which is uh, either no equity dilution to our shareholders or very limited equity dilution to our shareholders in order to get a tango into production in return for giving up a minority amount of production to an offtake finance partner. Um, when you do the numbers and when you think about how it works, it just makes sense. It, it's a win-win-win, certainly a win for our shareholders. It's a win for us being able to get the uh, project constructed 
um, without dealing with the banking syndicate, for example. And it's a win for the utility because they can lend money. If they're a state-owned enterprise, they're lending money that costs them effectively nothing anyway. Um, and even if they're a commercial utility, their cost of borrowing will be very low the way I see expansionary monetary policy developing over the next few years. And that's money that will be repaid to them, plus they secure um, a substantial amount of supply that can have that fundamental de-risking of their supply chain over a long period of time. And I like that. That's fantastic. I think it works really well if you can negotiate that for the cost of capital purposes and just the uh, the relationship purpose. They're coming in with skin of the game, which is important. And I also think that some equity issuance at that time for supportive shareholders who want to continue to increase their stake, I think that there should always be an equity component, obviously not heavily dilutive, but uh, certainly an equity component nonetheless. So good on you for that. And I won't press you anymore on the contract pricing bit, but let's move on. Let's talk audience question here. And I think this question wasn't able to clarify, but this question was about the actual options market, not specific company warrants, but what are your thoughts on using options to play uranium? And are there any success stories of uranium investors who did it last time by playing options? Look, I think that's a, that's a question that is far more about investor risk tolerance than it is about the uranium market. Um, what I can say is I'm a strong believer in the asymmetrical nature of the uranium price, the commodity itself. And I think you've got an, a relatively new overlay on that, which has only come about since the pandemic. And that overlay is the commodity super cycle and the fact that uh, commodities are at their cheapest that they've been in decades, um, if you compare a commodity basket with the Dow Jones, for example. So we've got a situation where the pandemic plus all of the expansionary monetary policy has led to a flight to real assets, uh, big investment, um, uh, big investors, I should say, are concerned that putting cash in the bank is uh, gonna leave their returns way behind, They're paying for the privilege in many jurisdictions, and they're looking to deploy money into hard assets, in particular commodities as a key asset class. Now, when you start looking around at commodities, you can work your way all the way through the list. Uh, find a commodity that hasn't already run, and there's maybe a couple, you know, you might be able to go into agribusiness, and, um, but certainly in terms of industrial commodities, there's not a commodity that hasn't already run. And so other commodities have got two forms of downside. They've got the downside of uh, an, a macro event or a softening in demand affecting their fundamental value. And then they've got the downside that they've already run a little bit too hard. Compare that to uranium. Well, uranium's still languishing at $30, which is well below the average cost of production around the world. And it's also got the downside protection in that unless we saw something really catastrophic at a global level such as a meter or hitting the hitting the planet or something like that the the demand for uranium over the next 10 to 20 years is locked in and it might it might change a little bit at the edges you might see reactors either turn off or not turn off as they're in their life etc cetera, etc cetera. but essentially that demand is locked in so it doesn't have the downside that many industrial commodities have got where there can be quite substantial demand shifts. 
So then what we've got is an asymmetrical investment proposition that is appealing to a world that is looking to park off money so that A, the value of their money doesn't go backwards, but ideally it goes up. And then you put the uranium macro overlay onto that and all of the reasons why we feel so certain that uranium has to double and triple from the current spot price. I can see this being an extremely attractive safe harbour for a small proportion of very, very large buckets of money that is needing to find new homes um, in the whole context of this expansionary monetary policy environment that's emerged from the pandemic. So when you look at it that way, if someone's already comfortable with the, with the risk, uh, with options and various other derivatives, uh, well, I'd say that uranium should definitely be one of the commodities that they would be looking at. I just wouldn't use options just for the sake of saying that first, I don't think you have to given the profile. And secondly, there's not a lot of access. I can't get options on certain things that I would want anyway right now. And I probably most likely you won't ever see them. Maybe you will later in the cycle, but there's just not enough options that are attractive with the right profile for me to get interested. Now playing this in part with warrants, Oh, absolutely. I think warrants make a lot of sense uh, at different times and using them you know, prudently makes sense, but try to use the actual options market to me doesn't make much sense at all. We'll leave it to folks who want to play that game. I don't think it's the right way to play it, but we'll leave it to them. How about the role of social media, Brandon, and ease of access to the markets? Perhaps you know, financial literacy as well, um, or really lack of in some cases, in my view, regarding retail investors you know, now compared to the prior cycle, what consequences do you see that social media and this, you know, access to markets and literacy have for this current cycle? Yeah, there's two aspects of that that I think are interesting. Um, the first one, which is the bigger picture aspect, is there's a thematic driver today that didn't exist back in 2004 that is not being priced into the current uranium market nearly adequately. And that is the ESG green money decarbonisation thematic. It's absolutely enormous and it will continue to be absolutely enormous. And that is where social media will really play a big role. Um, apart from being the natural hub for that way of thinking, uh, social media delivers information in a way that will differentiate between not only different asset classes and their role that they can play in decarbonisation, but also between different companies and their capacity to attract the attention and, you know, let's face it, the imagination of green investors and the custodians of those enormous quantities of investor capital. So that's the first thing I'd say, and that's a thematic that is only just starting to be recognised and will be a, a key differentiator between you know, the very attractive heat that we saw during the last uranium boom from 2004 to 2007 and what we can expect to occur this time around, both in the way that it drives fundamental demand for nuclear power, but also in the way that it, it drives investor appetite for uranium. Now, the other aspect that I think is interesting is, you know, we've had a reasonable amount of experience in social media and it was born out of necessity because I could not bring myself 
to just pony up the amounts of money required to buy your way into exposure on um, fee for production, video interviews and podcasts and that sort of thing. So, and you just don't get the right audience that way anyway. So people love your podcast for various different reasons, all entirely valid. And one of them is uh, your guests don't pay for it. So it's authentic, it's credible. If there's something that you don't like about what you're being told, you'll challenge it because you've, you know, you've got nothing to lose. It's not like you've got a client sitting on the other side who's paid three, $4,000 for the podcast. And both because of the frugal culture that we've got within Bannerman and because I had an issue with the, the authenticity of those types of uh, productions, I just said no. And I refused to, to pay for that sort of stuff. And other than one event, which was to support our OTC listing because I couldn't travel, we haven't spent a cent on conference presentations or podcasts or video or proactive or any of that in well over a year, if not two. So we realized that we obviously needed to continue with investor relations. And so we made an early push into developing our own online channels. Um, and you're familiar with probably all of it, Andrew. Uh, and so I just found that Twitter was a tremendous resource for intelligent interaction on Uranium. Um, we do use some other channels, which I don't find as concentrated, but also useful. And the amount of value that people can get from your show, and there's a couple of other shows which are good as well, it just means that the business of charging companies four or $5,000 to make them look professional on YouTube, we don't need to do it and we won't be doing it. And I think that'll become a bigger differentiator as well as investors get a better sense for credibility and authenticity and they get a better access themselves to the information. So someone who's prepared to do the work and you know got at least a little bit of investing now, everything that they need, they can obtain from Twitter right now on Uranium if they're prepared to put a bit of time in. And that's a big change from back in 2004 and 2007 when that information just wasn't as available and Uranium looked, I mean, it's, it's still pretty opaque these days and it was opaque back then, but unless people went to the conferences and spoke directly to the utilities, they just simply couldn't get up the curve. So they were much more reliant on both analysts at firms and also this PR apparatus that I've been talking about. The ESG point is a hidden asset and something that was completely unexpected, including my expectations, is going to be a huge force. And I think it's just starting. So I really appreciate you bringing up that point. And just let me clarify too. So just for the audience, for those who haven't been with us long, you know, this show has been free for a number of years at my expense. So it was something that lost money. And of course, the whole endeavor of Smith Weekly Research is a money loser. There is a need to cover costs. So we're trying to find ways to do that. And so as of a few months ago, we decided that portfolio companies get a free ride as far as you know coming on the podcast. If it's a portfolio company, um, there is no charge. And also if it's an invited company, there is no charge. However, if it's a company that just wants to come on our podcast and it's not portfolio and it's not invited, then we are now charging a production fee. So that's just to clarify. And Brandon, for Bannerman, you guys got lucky. You guys were invited and invited. Now you're a portfolio company. I'm no longer inviting you. But because you're a portfolio company, you can come on the show at no charge. 
And I think that's the right way to approach it for us to help cover some of our costs. We don't necessarily think our members should pay for it, and I'm tired of paying for it personally. So that's how it's been set up. I think that's the right way to do it. It shows uh, how we've done it. It proves that we're transparent and honest about how we're doing it. And I think that's the most effective way to do it. And then on top of that, you know, I'm not opposed to some of these conferences going forward. Things will heat up, as you know. Promotion money, awareness money will come in as things heat up. And I think, you know, all companies will do their part in the future to uh, to get the message out as the market heats up and, and money starts flowing into the sector. So I'm not necessarily opposed to that, but overpaying? Absolutely. I, I fully agree that uh, it's not prudent to do that. And unfortunately, like you and I, we're in the natural resource sector, a place of dilution, a place of parties, and a place of overpaid promotion. And that's not going to stop anytime soon, I'm afraid to say. But it's good to bring up those points and really put it out there for the folks that are listening. Certainly encourage anybody who has any opposing views to what I've said here to please write me and state those views and why. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Twitter part of it. Your presence in places like Twitter has helped. I'd like to get your view on that because you're frequent on Twitter and as is you have a, you know, Bannerman has a company account with Twitter. Has it helped in a net perspective or has it taken away from Bannerman's message out there? What do you think? Is it a net gain or net loss? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, you probably have to ask that of others who are receiving the message because it's not always easy to judge as the, the sender of the message how well it's received. Um, where it's been really good for us is um, it's been tremendous in terms of reaching into the North American market uh, to support liquidity on our OTC listing when I've been unable to travel because of pandemic and the fact that we can't leave Australia. So that's that's been wonderful. And it's also been an awesome platform for connecting with shareholders. Um, so uh, I've had many interactions, um, mainly via direct messaging with shareholders and uh, the folks appreciate it. And it's a nice way of staying in touch and learning what their concerns are and, and all of those things that, that we should do. And it tends to be a very good outlet for smaller retail shareholders who in many instances, and I don't understand this, but in many instances, they're, they're just so pleased to be connected because they feel like because they aren't a big boy, they don't have the right to talk to the CEO. Um, so that's where it's been really nice as well. And look, it's also been very important I think whenever I see a narrative that I think is, not that I disagree with it, but I think it's just way off piste um, to start weighing in on a narrative and have the platform to be able to do that. Um, so whether it's a narrative that comes from a price reporter, for example, or a narrative that's being pushed by someone else who's got, uh, who's got a vested interest in something, it is important to have that platform to try and create a little bit of equilibrium. And I see some other influences in the sector using it in that way as well. Good points. And it can certainly, uh, you have to manage it. You have to have a discipline there. And I like the point about the smaller retail investor who can come and talk. That's an important piece. And there's not a lot of sectors in the world that you can do that. This is certainly one of them. But I think that is important to point out and to turn off some of the noise at certain times um, and only engage with things that make sense 
know, unfortunately, there's some out there that are just lost and we can't rescue them. But a disciplined approach to things like social media without wasting a terrible amount of time or at least focusing that time, Brandon, on key value discussions with people who really want to learn and not just cause problems. One of the things I hate is, is having to waste my time on silly, stupid things, which just makes me furious. But uh, on another subject here, just wrapping up, you know, when I look at uranium in Africa, I really think of kind of two places that are capable, Brandon, Namibia and Niger. Yes, of course, credit to Malawi, thanks to uh, Borjoff and Club. But, uh, you know, there are some other potentials to a lesser extent out there. But there is really a clear jurisdictional preference for me, and really I think for a lot of people should really consider, and that preference is being Namibia. We really only have three notable development narratives in Namibia and two in Niger. Why should investors care about jurisdiction and a particular company over the others? I think there's two aspects to that, Andrew. The first one, why should they care about jurisdiction per se? Um, I think we've answered the first part of that, which is the right jurisdiction can deliver a competitive advantage on diversification of supply and also uh, availability to certain types of financing structures, such as the offtake financing. Um, now, the other aspect of jurisdiction is again, where uranium is very different to copper, gold or other industrial metals, is the complexity associated with a country becoming a uranium exporter for the very first time is an underappreciated aspect of this sector. And that comes in many different forms, but the form of that complexity that really bites is when you need a government department, which might not even exist, to fulfill some very stringent and demanding roles with the IAEA, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and the, the nation's uh, multilateral obligations under safeguards um, and non-proliferation treaties. Until that's all in place, you simply cannot export uranium from a country. And so as John Borshaw will tell you and some of the team that I know well who worked for him in Malawi back then, that was a key part of the challenge. They, they had to take Malawi from a country that had never produced or let alone exported uranium and encourage a government who can be uh, demotivated at the best of times to develop all of that capability and infrastructure and interfaces and pass all of the different requirements through parliament, et cetera, et cetera. So being, being in an existing uranium jurisdiction is extremely important in terms of your timeline to development, and that should not be underestimated. Then you've got the aspect of social and government acceptance. And that does vary. Like if I compare Namibia to you know, pick a first world country like Australia where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, Namibia's got a very strong development agenda, um, as does Niger, and Namibia is extremely grateful to both diamonds and uranium for the enormous contributions they've made to the country. Diamonds in over a century and uranium over the last 45 years. And if you walk around the community of Spokkelmund, which is our host community, uh, there's just so many buildings and houses that are built by a Rossing Uranium mine, uh, that uh, that appreciation is really ingrained into the local community. Compare that to first world country like Australia, which is 
you know, kind of spoilt for riches, really. Um, as a society, we can pick and choose whether we want uranium mining without even the slightest consequence to us at a community level, except for the people who are wanting to work in the uranium mine or the people who are thinking more mindfully about our ability to contribute positively to decarbonisation of the earth. So they're, they're, that's for me, that's the key points on jurisdiction. And there's some very attractive projects in jurisdictions that have never exported before. But particularly if they're in a third world that struggles a bit with bureaucracy and uh, government capability in the first place, uh, that's a challenge that an incumbent uh, producer needs to take on at a corporate level, um, working with government. And I look at projects around the world that uh, look very attractive on paper. And in many instances, I think investors are not pricing that risk in. Well said, I can't say it much better. I think you hit it on the head there, especially I like your comment on Australia. You can add gold and oil to Namibia's list of exports, but we got to put it in perspective here. Now, I know you'd go to Namibia with your family, and maybe we would also operate in Niger without our family, but would you take your family to Niger? No. In, in fact, I can't even get travel insurance to go to Niger. I just had to touch on that. And again, it's not saying that someone shouldn't operate in Niger and not saying that there's very, very capable people. I've spoken to some that can operate in Niger, but still wouldn't take their family there for one reason or another. But I just had to get that clarification. Namibia, it's really different. Botswana and Namibia are uh, competing for top jurisdiction. South Africa has dropped down in my tier list. It's Namibia and Botswana, really, really important and really fantastic jurisdictions. Brandon, given the Chinese presence in Namibia, does Bannerman go the way of a sovereign at the end of the day? Or do you think that there's a major Western producer or even just a major Western mining company that would care about Bannerman for an acquisition? Yeah, I expect to have all of those options available to us. And that's one of the advantages of a Tango 8 over the uh, over only having the very large Tango as an option. Um, the very large Tango is obviously very attractive to the largest sovereigns, particularly the Chinese operators and the Russians, South Koreans obviously the French um, and potentially Middle Eastern groups. But what a Tango 8 does is it, by being that half of the size and therefore smaller and lower development hurdles, uh, it will be attractive to those parties, but also to a much greater array of current market players and future market players. We, we haven't yet seen the mid-tier diversified miners come into uranium. But they will need to. They'll need to for ESG reasons. Uh, we haven't seen the oil companies come into nuclear power, but some of them will need to for ESG reasons. And so I've very much got my eye on not what's happening in front of me, but what's happening over the horizon. And I see those new entrants on top of the Chinese dynamic that we've talked about, creating a, a very fertile environment for doing deals that are you know, obviously great for getting the project into production, but also great for shareholders. I think the majors come back. I'm not sure what price point. I think that there'll be some Western majors that come back into this. And there's also, we know that there's still a couple who will try to force things through at certain price points. I don't need to mention names, but definitely there'll be an effort to revive and dust off some of these old projects for the majors and, and try to shove through social license, et cetera. We'll see what happens, but I think that that does happen at some point. 
Well, potential investors who are on the sidelines listening here, Brandon, market cap stands about 145 million Aussie here. What would you say to potential investors at this stage and at current price levels? Well, I think what you can say clearly about Bannerman and Tango is that we're a asymmetrical, asymmetrical risk proposition within a commodity that's already got an asymmetrical risk proposition. Um, a lot of what I've done over the last five years has been pruning off the non-financial or non-price related risks to our project. And we've really completed that now with the capital raising in that we've removed our own cost of capital risk from that equation. So if you were to tick through the things that might keep you up at night, um, we have environmental permitting, we're in the jurisdiction of Namibia, we've got a low technical risk project, we've got an enormous volume of high quality technical work, our numbers are honest, uh, I'd like to think that our management is best in class with deep Namibian experience and deep uranium experience across several individuals in our team. We're extremely prudent on the way that we spend our money and the fact that we've now got 14 million in our bank doesn't mean that we're going to change that in any way. And um, therefore, we come down to the key risk with us and really the only substantial risk is uranium price. So our position in your portfolio really depends on your view of uranium price. And uh, if you're a uranium investor at all, it probably means that uh, you've got an optimistic view. And the fact that we've got, I would argue, market leading leverage plus now scalability to our project means that I would say that Bannerman deserves to be in every uranium investor's portfolio. And if you see the market anything like the way that I see it, it should be a large part of your portfolio. Brandon, well-spoken as always. Best way for the investors to reach out to you and the company? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. You can reach out at info at bannermanresources.com.au. And the reason why that's a good way to reach out is it goes through my PA, Joan, so it won't get lost because I do get an enormous number of emails from all sorts of corners of uh, the world. So that, that way it'll get shepherded through and looked after. And also uh, direct messaging me on Twitter is also a good way to do it. Um, so I'd say they're the, the two best entry points. And please, when you're reaching out, let me know if you're a shareholder because we try and make sure that shareholders get uh, extra access to information and in particular, my own commentary that, uh, that you know well, Andrew. I like that. I like the preference component. So important, absolutely. Brandon, fun discussion as always. Let's cut it there. Uh, Keep up the efforts over at Bannerman, continue to add value and uh, appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks. It was really great being on again and love what you're doing, Andrew. You're really such an important beacon for our sector. Thank you.